us in worship this morning? That'd be great. Thank you. We are in week three of our... (laughs) I hope that you don't cheer for your football teams like that. Uh, uh, We are in week three of our series, Prayer Matters. Uh, Week one, we looked at what it means for us to pray upward, for us to consider who it is we're praying to and what the Bible says about God, looking at Psalm 118. Last week, we looked at praying forward, uh, and we looked at us lining our lives up with God in the way that we pray and in the way that we see Scripture in order for us to be the people that God would have for us to be. And this week we we look at praying inwardly. What it means when we consider and we see the things in us that we don't want to be there. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to Psalm 51, and I also want you to mark a play. I want you to open those to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and mark Psalm 51 because we're going to do a little bit of a back and forth between these two texts. I love a good list. I think that you in this room... If you're being honest with yourself, you like a good list too because no one loves anything more than a subjective argument. And some of my favorite lists are top ten lists. And it really doesn't matter if I'm on social media uh, what top ten list I come across. Even if it's something that I'm not interested in, I am more than likely going to give it a, a glance. So if I see a list of the top ten greatest young adult novels of all time, I know that one through seven are the Harry Potter series, and then Katniss probably comes in at number eight, and there's a couple more. And if I look at a list of the top ten superheroes, then I, in my heart and in my mind, know who I believe to be the number one superhero of all time. That's The Flash. And if you want to argue with me, I'm okay with you being wrong. If we look at a list of the top ten quarterbacks, I can make really good arguments as to why my favorite quarterback is the greatest quarterback of all time. And I can listen to your arguments as to how great Troy Aikman is. And I'll just point you to the fact that he never threw for over 2,000 yards. So we have lots of arguments about sports and lots of arguments about subjective things. When we look into the scriptures, if we were going to make a top ten list of Bible heroes, we do not get very far before we come to the person that we have historically known as King David. We learned about David as children from either felt boards or singing vegetables. And as we learned about David, we found out lots of things about him that his dad kind of put him over onto the side so that when Samuel came to find a king, David wasn't even in the sorting. He was out there with lions and tigers and bears. And then eventually David becomes the... uh, He is the chosen anointed one, but before that ever gets put into place, he goes to fight a giant named Goliath. We know David's story. We know that he was the king of Israel, that he would not lay his hand on the Lord's anointed, is what the scriptures tell us. We know lots about David. But then when we really get into the list of things that we know about David, there are some things that are there that if we were writing our own memoirs, we would not want them to be there. If we were going to give a story of our lives' victories and defeats, these are things that we would want to be pushed to the side. David, as we heard earlier, had a situation. 
And that situation was this, that he had grown older and a bit lazy. If you just listen along with me from an excerpt from 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. There he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, hey, is that not... That's paraphrased. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. And then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David... I'm pregnant. This is a story that we told today. You have a hero that everyone loves, especially in the world that we live in, where you find out within a matter of seconds as to what happens when, in someone's life and when things go badly. A hero achieves fame and power. He finds an attractive woman who just happens to be married to someone else, but his fame and power communicate to him that they are more important than that woman's commitment and that man's covenant. So David begins to try to do what all of us do when we make mistakes. He begins to try to cover up those mistakes. And as he tries to cover up those mistakes, he's, he's dealing with things over here. He's plotting behind closed doors. He's making sure that he's dealing with the situation without looking at how this situation is to deal with him. He brings Uriah, her husband, home from war. But Uriah will not go home to, to be with his wife because he has such a great commitment to his king. David confronts him in a kingly way, an encouraging way. It tells him to go home and he said, No, I can't go do that while my brothers are at war. David gets him intoxicated. But Uriah... When David wakes up the next morning, is asleep at the door. So David has no other choice. In his impacted, affected heart. Than to have Uriah killed. This story can be told whenever, wherever, about whatever. David's heart has been covered. And he doesn't want to deal with it. Earlier I had Jared read from 2 Samuel 12. Let's hear this just again. Just the first seven verses. The Lord sent to David and he came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city. One rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up and he grew it up with him and with his ch children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Side note, this is a strange interaction with a lamb, if we're being honest. Four. Now there came a traveler to the rich man... And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger 
was greatly kindled against the man. Is that not every one of us? When we're looking outside of our own situations and our own scenarios and we see the sin of someone else, though it may be synonymous with our own sin, we are blind to our own issue because that person is someone that we can project our frustration upon. David knew the right thing to do. He knew what that man and this weird lamb story should have done. This man should die, David said. He deserves to die. So here's what we'll do. He'll restore the lamb fourfold. So he's going to give him four lambs to hold. Because he did this thing, because he has no, had no pity. David knew the right thing to do, he just didn't do it. That's where my heart is with sin. That's where your heart is with sin. That's where Paul's heart was with sin, Romans seven fifteen. I do not understand my own actions. Just so I know, we should start a club. If you've ever not understood your own actions, could you put your hand up right now? If you don't have your hand up, you should put your hand up because you're fibbing to us. We've all been there. I do not do what I want to do. I do the very thing that I hate. Nathan, go to this man. Make him repay these lambs. And then he hears these words. You are the man. This is not in the good way that you tell someone they're the man. I texted Steve Korn the other day. We're going to have lunch here at the church. He texted me back, you're the man. That's a kind way to approve me with this very phrase. But David, you're the man. What happens when you get caught? Do we like to be caught? Hoping her sister had a sibling rivalry because they were sisters and that's what they do. It's what brothers do too. Her sister was the one that always uh, in front of her parents seemed to behave well. Hope was fine with not behaving well. There was, and her sister would report to mom and dad as to Hope's wrongdoings. If you've ever had that sibling, could you just give me an amen? amen. So she has this sibling. So Hope wanted to, to deal with her sister but did not want to be caught. So every night when they would go to bed, Hope would go into the bathroom and she would take her sister's toothbrush and she would scrub it around the ring of the toilet and then put it back in the toothbrush holder. She would eventually tell her when they were grown-ups, like full-born adults, to not be caught. David is caught. What do you do when you're caught? What do you do when your sin turns on you? Uh, I want to give you some, some phrases to follow. They're alliterated today. And hopefully they will help you and benefit you as you're taking notes. Uh, the first thing that we see is that there's revelation that has taken place here. Am I right? Revelation. Nathan has revealed to David his wrongdoing. Revelation. So we're turning over to Psalm 51. 
What does Revelation provide for us? Revelation deserves response. Again, if you're a note taker, write that down. Revelation deserves response. There is something that is there that needs to be handled, that needs to be taken care of. So the revelation of your sin and you seeing how problematic it is, it calls for response from me and from you. And we see that with David and in Psalm 51. We actually see as the, the, the writer gives us, or the person who provides for us the notes in the Bible, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Beth, into Bathsheba, this is David seeing his sin and responding to it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, please blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. God, I need you to do something. I know my transgressions, verse 3 says, and my sin is ever before me. I see the sin that's there and it needs to be dealt with. Some consistent words that we've seen throughout our, our study of these psalms. And one of those is the word steadfast. It's found in verse 1. We talked about it about in reference to God just a couple of weeks ago. How he is a God who is consistent in his love. Ever present. An ever present help in times of trouble when we are never present people who are always in trouble. God is consistent for us. His abundant mercy, which means that that mercy that we receive from God is never going to give up. It's never going to fail. We will never eclipse God's mercy. That's my token reference for the day. God's love for us is intense. It's immense. It is something that is that we are unable to escape from. But when we have sinned, there is something that is there that needs to be dealt with for our sake how often do we just ignore our sin thinking that it will go away we won't have conversations with God about our sin because we believe that our sin will just go away and stop being a problem but it keeps nagging us so imagine that this is your living room and uh, in your living room you know that you have company that is coming to visit your home. You'll, if you're the spouse or if you're the one who cooks at your house, you're, you're the one who is preparing the meal in the kitchen. You're also scurrying around to make sure that things are dusted. Gentlemen, dusting is when we take a little piece of cloth and we remove uh, particles that have settled on the mantle and other places. So you are moving around dusting and you are vacuuming and you are undoing all of the dirt in your home. However, in the middle of that living room is a garbage bag that is full of garbage. Now, I don't know what is garbage at your house. I know some of you are, are farmers, so I would imagine there are chicken feet in the garbage bag. And others of you cook, and there's bacon grease in the garbage bag. And then if you have babies, we know that there are diapers in the garbage bag. There are lots of things in this garbage bag, and you are working all around to make sure that your home is clean to remove any type of problems that people would see that are secondary. However, in the middle of the floor is this pile of garbage that you just keep ignoring that's what sin does it settles we clean up corners 
and we vacuum around it and we dust what needs to be dusted. But these massive sins that settle in our hearts don't get dealt with. The revelation of God deserves response. When God has shown you that which is in you that is wicked, deal with it. You deal with that through interaction with Him. Because He's already dealt with it. Second thing we see in verses 4 through 9 is, if you're a note taker, again, response dictates repentance. Again, response dictates repentance. Responding to our wicked action means that we want to see our sin in the way that God sees our sin. Verse 4. Against you, and you only have I sinned. Wait, wait, my sin wasn't against my wife, or my sin wasn't against my neighbor, or my sin wasn't against my child. God, ultimately, any wrongdoing that I have is against you. And the reason for that is God is the only unbroken person in the entirety of the universe. Against you I've sinned, and I've done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. So what this means is every one of us, when we are born, we are born sinful. We are born in a way where, where because of our sin, we deserve judgment. We deserve God's wrath. We are deserve to be separate from God for all of eternity. We are sinful. Now, grace and God's grace is this beautiful thing that we see and it, it, it interacts with us. But here we see David pointing out that every single one of us, at our core, we are sinful. So for every one of us who tried to convince the world that we're good people because we have never pushed a little old lady in the street or stomped on a puppy paw, Scripture tells us your hearts are far from God. You're sinful people. Six... Behold, God, you deal, you delight in truth and the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So, so God, I know that I need to repent. But for me to repent, I need to see it through the lens by which you see repentance. Purge me with hyssop. I don't think any of you have purged anything with hyssop this week. Where does this phrase come from? It's a reference to the Passover. As the Jewish people prepared their homes for the Passover angel to go over their homes. They would ritually purify their home by dipping hyssop in the blood of the Passover lamb putting on their doorposts. The story of Jesus interacting here. Because it's about the grace of God through the blood of Jesus that we are passed over. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Wait, that's weighted. I don't typically think about broken bones and rejoicing in the same thought. Here, here's what Paul David Tripp says. He's, he's a pastor. He's brilliant and he has a really sweet mustache. He says this. God's grace will come to us in uncomfortable forms. We always tie grace to, to happy things. To things that don't seem to twist and turn us or, or make us think differently. I was sitting with a group of college students this summer and, and those college students were being given direction by their camp staff leader and that camp staff leader was letting them know that these college students, they had not been on time a lot. So his, uh, his approach to them not being on time was, and, and we've been ignoring this, we've been showing you grace, but now's the time for there to be consequences. And I thought about our kids and, and maybe how your house works. How we say to our children all the time, you, you, we want to show you grace. But you're at, here's what we're saying, even though we're not trying to say it. We want to show you grace, but you've been so bad that grace doesn't work anymore. I hope that's not true. The goal of grace is to always transform. The goal of grace is transformative. So if by overlooking in a positive way we have experienced grace, that's beautiful. But what happens when God shows us grace that, that wounds us? Because that same grace is still for our good. Walking with a limp for the sake of our good. That's a lie that Satan tells us. That grace could not be enough that we would eventually have to just go with consequences. Our consequences laid upon Jesus. Nine, hide your face, God, from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So again, we, we've, we've seen these concepts. Revelation deserves response. I think we all would agree with that. And then response, it dictates repentance. God shows us how to repent. Then repentance, again, if you're writing things down, it directs restoration. Your repentance directs your restoration. What's that mean? The end goal is for us to, to, to have a, a view of our relationship with God that is as frictionless as possible in this crooked, depraved world. So that I can hear from him. So that he can guide me. Most of us would say that we believe that repentance is running from our sin. And, and I agree with that. 
But most of the time when that definition is given of repentance, it's incomplete. Because repentance is not just turning away from your sin, it's turning towards God. It's finding your restoration in who God is. It's seeing that if there is going to be a clean slate, it's because of who God is. Go with me, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Everything that verses 10 through 12 lay out, they are impossible if not for God acting. If, us, if we do not see who we have turned towards as the healer, the restorer, the right maker, the one who has removed all issue within us. Repentance directs restoration. Us saying, God, I'm sinful is not enough. God, I am sinful. But my hope is in you because you're sinless. I will transgress. I, then I will transgress your ways. Verse 13. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. It's a weighted word. All of these done. I, called, I took advantage of a woman, David says. I, I had a man put to death. God, if you, if you don't deliver me, I'm not delivered. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I've been Baptist the bulk of my life. I've loved coming to Lake Jackson and becoming Baptist. But when you're in crowds that have the background that I have, sometimes you watch a room as we sing, and I know that not everyone's expressive. Like, not all of us are ever going to have our hands up. But I do wonder if it's strange that we never want to put our hands up. And I get that not all of you can sing because I can't sing. But it's strange to me that a forgiven people would never want to sing. Never want to sing. And I get that not everyone's as joyful as, as, as Marty can be when she's here with us and we miss her and make sure you let her know that they're, they're with Regan and Dirk. But I would pray that if those who could see you when they watch you, not that they would need you to have, be animated or have your hands up, they, they would just see that as a forgiven person, you don't look like you're being punished by these songs to the Lord.
Because restoration defines rejoicing. An unstrained relationship with the Lord should cause worship to happen well. 15. O Lord. Remember who this Lord is. The, the forgiver, the righteous one, the one who's, who's changed us. O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. I mean, this is still David talking. He had every calf, every sheep in all of it. Anything he wanted was his. And he says, God, you don't want that. That's a big deal because the ritual sacrifice is a major part of their worship. You won't be pleased with my burnt offering, but their whole belief system is tied to the idea of, of the nostrils of God being pleased by the aroma that, that comes to the air. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. In a world where ritual sacrifice measured immeasurably, David knew that ritual was not God's end goal. So for every one of us who's moving and meandering about Lake Jackson each week, and we come in here and we, we do this thing that is a low-scale ritual, gathering, Scripture calls for it, but it's kind of part of the process of being a church-goer. You may not even be a Christian to be a church-goer. In so doing, don't ignore the sin in your own heart. Because you can be just as much separated from God standing in this room as you can across the street. So cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Renew a right spirit within me. Deal with your bag of garbage. Because if we don't, that garbage just gets worse. Stinks more. Makes others sick. No matter how much you dust and vacuum around it. So let's rejoice for what God has done on our behalf. In a way that doesn't just cause us to look unique in here. But that causes our lives to look different out there. Renew a right spirit in me. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings, the sacrifices that you want. You want me to see the broken spirit. You want me to see how much I need you. That's what you don't despise, God. That I see that I need you. Would you bow your heads with me?
one of our quick rituals is for us when we begin to sing to just stand up and begin to sing because the band's standing and singing and I don't want you to feel like you need to do that necessarily I would invite you maybe this week just to let them sing over you for a few moments and I want you to kind of walk through that text Psalm 51 in light of your own life what garbage needs to be taken out what wickedness needs to be dealt with on your behalf who are you angry with that you need to restore that relationship who, who are you I don't know your heart as much as I'm loving getting to know you I don't know your hearts let's let this passage go to work on us because we're no different than David when, when Nathan looks at him and says, You're the man. You're the woman. Needs to be dealt with. Or that tension that's there is just going to be there. I'll open this time up for a time of prayer.